0: Man, well, good morning, Tri Cities Church. You know, it's only in this space that uh, surrendering the space before the Lord of creation that surrendering becomes a good thing, right? And everywhere else in society, if you surrender or you give up something or you give yourself away, that's not necessarily something you do by choice or voluntarily. Uh, but the gospel compels us to give ourselves away, to surrender all, to let go where we can free fall into the arms of our Savior who knows what to do with our lives and knows our lives, our steps, and our pathway better than we know ourselves. And so we, um, we surrender with smiles on our faces, right? Uh, we We surrender with joy in our hearts. We surrender with the confidence of knowing uh, that the God who created us, who gave us our lives and breath, right when we surrender to him, our lives fall into his will and we're led by him and we do the good works of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that are making this place new. Well, good morning, Tri-Cities Church, and welcome. Welcome, uh, if you're with us for the first time, we do welcome you. I'm I'm Wesley, I'm one of the pastors here at Tri-Cities Church. Have the joy of uh, preaching. We have been in this series. uh, We're calling urgent that we are looking at the missionary journeys of Paul, all three of them, and we're really just kind of taking a um, I hate to say it this way, but taking a shallow dive into the missionary journeys of Paul, uh, because if we took a deep dive in the missionary journeys of Paul, we'd be there all year. Uh, so we're taking kind of a shallow dive into the missionary journeys of Paul, and we're seeing um, the, how these this... Um, the mission of God was urgent for him, and he felt this deep, driving need within his soul uh, to do the work of God and to, uh, to preach the gospel in a way that was compelling and that called the world to come and know their Savior, to call the world to surrender all and give it all to Jesus our God and Savior. So uh, we've been in that series uh, for, for uh, this is our third week in that series. Uh, we'll be wrapping it up next week, and then I'm excited about this new series is going to start after that. I can't tell you much about it because what happens often is, I get up here and I just start rambling before I uh, um, have clear ideas, and so this idea is not fully clear, and so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of throwing that out there in the atmosphere so I won't start rambling about what's coming next, but you're not going to want to miss it. It's a series uh, that we're going to do uh, that's going to be, um, it's going to be good. <laughs> it's gonna be good. All right. Um, well, l- let's pray, and then we'll get into our message for this morning. Uh, God, we do give you thanks this morning that we get to gather in this place and open your Word. God, we thank you that the Scriptures, that the Bible, is Word of God to us, and that you speak, not just to people long ago, but God, that you speak to us. And God, that we get to open the Bible and we get to encounter the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the greatest miracle that ever happened, the one that changed the course of all societies that will ever exist, the one that grabbed hold of our lives, that has rearranged them and transformed them so that we could be more like Christ right now, right here. God, as we open the scriptures this morning, I pray that you will lead us, that you will help us to see this urgent mission that we read about in the scriptures, that we'll be uh, uh, motivated by Paul's example, God, that we will live uh, in pursuit of you just as he did and recognize that ultimately this is all that matters. It's in your son Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So like I said, we're in this series that we're simply uh, been calling urgent, where we've been uh, kind of looking at the urgency of god 's mission through the lens of paul 's missionary journeys, and at the beginning we saw that on paul 's first missionary journey that he planted churches right he went out into the world planting churches, he was spreading the gospel and he was starting these new churches and telling people about uh, the God of creation who had become man and ultimately died for the sins of the world and was raised from the dead, and that as a result of that, they had this new life, this freedom that came from Jesus Christ, he was telling people that, and as people believed, those believers formed communities, those communities became churches. And we see that Paul had this sense of urgency that would not let him stop doing this work, even when his life was in danger and when his life was threatened, even when he was beaten and thrown in prison, even when he was shipwrecked and found himself in the middle of ocean, and when he was uh, defending his life and, and fighting for his life, Paul was driven by this mission that he just could not let go of. And in the first week, I don't know if you remember, there was this principle that we talked about, that urgency often leads to success, but success often leads to complacency and complacency to failure, right? Urgency often leads to success. So what we see with Paul is that he was driven by this message. He was driven by this sense of urgency where he told everyone everywhere about Jesus, and all these churches began to spring up. But that urgency, I mean, that that success often... uh, fuels this sense of complacency within us. We see that in our modern culture, right? The church in America was once very urgent about spreading the gospel, and we saw all these churches that were springing up, and by far our culture was characterized by Christianity and the gospel, at least uh, culturally so. Our churches were filled, and it seemed like we didn't have space or enough room, uh, and we were constantly planting churches. But that success And the traditions that set in as a result of that in our history and record of success caused us to become complacent. And our complacency has led to a place now where nearly or by some estimates more than 4,000 churches are closing their doors every single year. And so that first week, we saw that there's a need to rekindle this urgency within the church because our society depends on it. The second week, we saw that God will provide for all of our needs as we pursue his mission in the world. So as we follow in the example of Paul, who went out with his urgent mission, as we follow in his example, and we do the work, the will of God in the world, that sometimes the biggest thing that will hinder us is not seeing where our provision will come from. But for Paul, it was that he went out into the world, world pursuing and doing the work and will of God, and God provided in ways that he could not have foreseen. But if he sat back and waited on God's provision to come first, he never would have gone. And the scriptures challenge us to go and trust, not to go with all that we feel like we need, not to go with all the resources already in store, not go with uh, this safety net already in place, but to go knowing that we're going with God, and that the God of creation has us as we're pursuing his will in the world. And God's mission, God's work, um, for us believers, followers of Jesus Christ, it will always create, to some degree, a sense of discomfort and this feeling like we're taking a risk. And, and I guess I would say that if if we're not feeling the discomfort that comes with following Jesus, or for some reason it doesn't seem like you're taking a risk that you didn't foresee, um, then then I th- I think we got to step back and we got to ask, Am I following Jesus? At least that's that's the way I, I I think about it. As I try to follow others who have followed Jesus, is this question of Yeah, I mean, they felt the discomfort and the risk, and, and um, there's part of me that says, like, and this is the hard part of following Jesus, but there's part of me that says, I want to feel that discomfort as well, right? Because I know that as I feel that discomfort, that that's an indicator, at least, a sign that I'm, that I'm following Jesus because he's leading me into places that I would not ordinarily go, you know, there's this, uh, this uh, illustration, the sermon illustration, as we get into our message for this week, there's this uh, illustration that was used, that became popular, uh, and I don't know how many years ago, but I just know I grew up hearing it over and over again, and it really resonated with me. There was this story about this guy, Francis, St. Francis, if you will, uh, St. Francis of Assisi, and, and he was this popular minister back in the 12th century, and, and he would he would travel around, and he would preach from town to town, he was kind of like a traveling missionary, an evangelist of sorts, where he would go and records say that he even preached on some days up to five sermons a day and so this guy was traveling around spreading the gospel had this sense of urgency similar to Paul he was almost in his day at least a modern day Paul who was committed to sharing the gospel now a thing that you might not know about ministers is that from from For all of us, or at least most of us, um, we have these mentors that we look up to, these other guys that have gone on ahead of us that have walked in the way of the Lord and and that we look up to and we admire. And there may be one thing or another that we admire about them. We might like their preaching or uh, the the way they pastor others or the way they lead the church. And so as pastors, we have these mentors, these guys that we look up to. Now, I, I have a lot of mentors Now, I know them by name, and I could run down the list of their names, but they don't know me by name, right? Because our world has allowed it to work that way, where we can just kind of watch them on television or track with their churches on the internet. And there's these guys that I've watched for years, and I've learned how to be a pastor by watching them. Now, in a similar way, in biblical times, although they didn't have the technology that we have today, uh, pastors still had mentors. And there's this young minister that looked up to St. Francis, and he wanted to, to somewhat be like him, like he wanted to preach like him and have the uh, the, the robust style of preaching and theology and teaching and, and, and leading the church in the way that he did. And so St. Francis one day chose this young guy to come out on one, of his, um, on one of his journeys where he's going out to preach to the churches. And so this young guy is like ecstatic. I, and it's like if one of these guys that I've been watching from a distance called me up, right? I, 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 you know, I would just be ecstatic for this opportunity to actually walk with them and to observe them and to learn from them. This young minister was wanting to go out with St. Francis, and when he got that opportunity, he went out excited, wanting to watch him because they were going out preaching, and he was going to see firsthand how he wrote his sermons and organized his notes and all these kinds of things. And they went out the whole day, and they traveled all over from place to place to place. Now remember, St. Francis would write and preach up to five sermons a day, but then they returned back home at the end of the day, and they didn't preach one sermon. And this young guy says to Francis, he says, hey, I, I, like, I thought we were going preaching. And, and St. Francis says to him, we did. And, and there's this famous quote that comes out of it that says, preach the gospel always and when necessary, use words. And now that, that quote is powerful. And then you may have heard me even quote it before or use it before, um, because it's powerful because it says this thing that our lives can speak a message that's just as loud as our mouths. And depending on how loud you talk, your life may speak a louder message than your mouth is able to. In fact, our witness is so important in this world. And so the thing I love about that, uh, that quote and that story is that it accentuates the power of our witness and the importance of a witness in this world. But there's two problems with that quote. There's two problems with that whole story. The first one is... Um, the first one is nobody can find a record of that story anywhere. Like, it feels like it's this made-up mythological story of St. Francis. That quote doesn't exist out there anywhere in any of the texts that come from St. Francis' time. And so it's one that—the it, way I think of it is like, you know, that game that kids used to play where you whisper something in somebody's ear, and it evolves and evolves and evolves? Well, over hundreds of years of evolving, that's what that quote has become. The second problem is this. Our lives cannot preach the gospel— It's impossible for our lives to preach the gospel. Now, I've been guilty of this in my own life. I use that Matthew 5 quote, and I love to say, let your light shine before men and women that they may see your good light and praise your Father in heaven. Well, don't you know that's impossible unless you're telling them about your Father in heaven? Right, people aren't gonna see your life. They're not gonna see your good works. They're not gonna go, wow, he held the door for me, or wow, he came across the street and served me, or wow, he washed my car for me, or wow, when my cousin died, he was there for me. And, and they're not gonna intuitively go from that to Jesus. Right? The reality is that unless we're talking about Jesus, no one's going to come to know the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that quote has issues. Um, in fact, it should be said in a better way, preach the gospel always and since it's necessary, use words. Because if we're going to preach the gospel, it is necessary that we use our words. I think about little Emmanuel that was living with us, and he was having a hard time with his speech, right? He, um, we, had, we were foster parents, and, and little Emmanuel lived with us, and when he came to live with us. He didn't have any words, and when he left us, he had a few more words, but not so many. He was struggling to use his words, but you know, if you have a kid that's trying to express themselves and can't quite get the words out of out of their mouth uh, what they want to say, uh, one of the things parents often say is, use your words, use your words. And, and that's what we were saying to him. All the while, he's just getting more frustrated because he knows exactly what he wants and he's pointing to it. And we're trying to get him to talk. So we're saying, use your words, use your words. And I feel like saying the same thing to myself and saying the same thing to the church, right? If we want to get something across, right? If there's a message of some good news from Jesus Christ, if we're gathering in spaces like this, if we're saying that the gospel has transformed our lives, we got to learn to use our words to get that message across. The world needs to know the good news of Jesus Christ, and they need to know it because we're using our words to express the gospel. You know, Fran- St. Francis would be, um, and he would be turned over in his grave if he heard us using that quote, um, because he was committed to using his words, and never would he want it. his life and his story to be twisted in a way that allowed the church to get out of using their words To express the goodness of Jesus Christ. You know, there's that scripture in Romans chapter 10 that's so important, and I want you to hear it this morning because I think it speaks clearly to the importance of using our words. In Romans chapter 10 verse 13, listen to what it says. It says, for everyone that calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then Paul asks this question to the Romans, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. I want you to know that every day, every Sunday, that we gather in this space, and we sing these songs of praise, and we preach the word, and we commune with one another, fellowship with one another, hang out with each other, that all of this is so that we might be sent when we walk out of these doors to go proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, and we can proclaim, or at least uh, uh, um prime the pump with our lives but we can only proclaim it with our lips. Y'all saw I almost said we can proclaim it with our lives because I'm so used to saying that, but the reality is we're not proclaiming it with our lives. We're just priming the pump. We're just opening the door. We're just adding some validity to the gospel when we live it out because the world sees us preaching one thing and living another, then it closes the door for the gospel. But what we're living is not the gospel. And the the Bible's teaching us that and Jesus himself is teaching us, and Paul himself is teaching and modeling for us that the gospel can only be expressed with words. Now, in Acts chapter 18, we see that Paul goes on his third missionary journey, and he goes with a whole lot of words, In Acts 18, I think it's through verse 21, you can read about this third missionary journey of Paul. But he spent significant time in Ephesus. And so this is where we're taking our shallow dive this morning, if you will. We're going to dive into uh, Paul's time with Ephesus, which is three years. And it's odd even. Like some have questioned why these are called journeys. Because you think about a journey. Like we go on a journey and it's like you take a week off of work. You go on a journey, you return back home. Paul was going places and planting roots there, staying there preaching the gospel. And so on this missionary journey, he stops in Ephesus, and he spends three years with them. All of Acts chapter 19, those three years are summed up in one chapter. But Ephesus was such a significant place in the ancient world. Its population was over 200,000 people. It was known as the mother of Asia. It was in Asia minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. But it was was there, situated in the middle, the mother of Asia. And you just think about that. Like, you just think about the, the image that gives you. Like what do mothers do, right? They nurture, they feed, they provide. Ultimately, they're shaping the character and personality of their children. Ephesus was known as the mother of Asia. She was providing for, she was shaping the character and the culture of the areas around her. As the mother, ultimately, uh, the whole uh, area became characterized by what was happening there in Ephesus. In fact, Ephesus was along the Algean uh, Sea, and it had a river that flowed through it, whose mouth was right there in Ephesus, which allowed it to be a great port city where they would transport stuff to all the world, so the economy of Asia thrived only if Ephesus was thriving, because all the goods and services were passing through Ephesus. In fact, they had this temple there, um, the temple of Artemis, that also not only passed good and services, but passed culture to the rest of Asia. And people came to Ephesus to worship the gods there in that, that temple. And so Asia was this, or Ephesus was this uh, critical place where Paul saw a window, a door open, him to proclaim the gospel with his words there. And he chooses to plant some roots, to settle down, spend significant time proclaiming the gospel. And what the Bible shows us is that before Paul left Ephesus, that all of Asia, the Bible says all of Asia had heard the gospel. Let's look in Acts chapter 19, uh, where this story is, is recorded for us. I don't know which way my Bible turns. Acts chapter 19, um, verse 8. Listen to what it says. It says, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months. Now, this is Paul in Ephesus, and he's speaking boldly in the temple. It says he spoke boldly in the temple for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate, and they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. And then the way is, um, um, before we were called Christians, we were called followers of the way because our lives were so distinct from the culture around us. And so in biblical times, sometimes you'll read in the Bible, and they call them the way or followers of the way. And that should serve as a reminder to us that if we are following Jesus in our world, if we're living like him, then our lives ought to look different than the world around us. And so it says, they maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples. Now, at the beginning of this chapter, it talks about him having 12 disciples with him, similar to Jesus. He had these 12 disciples uh, that were with him. He took the disciples with him, and they had discussions daily in the lecture halls of Tyrannius. And it says this went on for two years. So he's having these discussions in this lecture hall that was probably used by philosophers uh, in the evenings and in the mornings in the cool of the day because they didn't have air conditioning. So in the cool of the day, there was this lecture hall that was used in the evenings and the mornings for uh, philosophers to speak. But Paul probably got in there during the middle of the day when it was free or at least cheap. Um, Because this was a small movement of disciples that had very little money and would not have been able to afford a lecture hall. So he gets in there in the middle of the day, and these 12 and whoever else they could convince him to come in there, wiping sweat and being miserable on the outside while being transformed in the inside by the gospel, whoever he could get to come in there, they were welcome to come and listen to his teachings about the way of Jesus. And it says, This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now here we're talking about more than a million people in Asia that heard the word of the Lord, because, Lord, the Lord, because Paul gathered in this small lecture hall, and he gathered with these 12 disciples, and it makes you go, if you're reading carefully, it makes you go, wait, how did that work? Like, how did these 12 guys, like, did they split areas up and go door, like, how did this work, that the whole Asia, all of Asia, heard the word of the God, like, more than a million people, and it 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 worked by one word, and that's discipleship. In fact, if we go back to verse 9, if you go back to verse 9, look at what it says there. It says, but some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples, right? He didn't take his friends, right? He didn't take his brothers, right? He had some brothers, right? He didn't take his mom and pops. He didn't take them, right? The Bible doesn't say that, right? He took some disciples because of the nature of discipleship right? Disciples by nature make disciples, right? That's the way discipleship works works. It's about walking with someone, living out your faith along with them, studying the way of Jesus Christ with them, so that as you learn to live the way in the way of Christ, they as well learn to live in the way of Christ. And then as they are learning from you, they are inviting someone else to walk with them as they live out the way of Christ, and they are studying the scriptures with someone else, and that person is learning to live in the way of Christ. And then the next layer happens, right? And that person is walking, And that's the way discipleship works, right? It's not just about being taught the gospel, but it's about calling others to come alongside with you. And so there in Ephesus, Paul took these disciples who were making disciples, who were were making disciples, that were making disciples, that were making disciples, that were making disciples. I could keep going like that all day long, right? Because that's the way it worked. And at the end of the day, before Paul left Ephesus, over a million people in all of Asia had heard the gospel. Because they were committed to making disciples. Because they were committed to using their words. Because they were committed to telling the good news of Jesus Christ. Because they were committed to staying awake at night, wondering how we can get more people to know this new life that is available in Jesus Christ. Because they were urgent about the work that God was calling them to. Now, something really cool happens there in Ephesus, and that's that Paul, with his little band of disciples, shifted the culture of Ephesus. If you look a little bit further in the same chapter, Acts chapter 19, if you drop down to verse 23, listen to what it says. It says, about that time there rose a great disturbance about the way. So there's this great disturbance. People are just, I mean, they're just hot and bothered by this Paul guy and the message that he's teaching. It says a silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines for Artemis. Now remember the temple of Artemis was there in Ephesus. They were the guardians of the temple of Artemis. Now this guy Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis brought in a lot of business. He was making money for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related traits and said, you know my friends that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear this fellow Paul, this troublemaker Paul, like you see and you hear him, he's convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. So he's saying, listen, we're not just going to lose our business from here. Like tourism, all that's going to cease. Like nobody's going to be coming to see us. If we're not careful, if we don't protect what's rightfully ours, this whole thing's going to shut down and he brings along all of his guys that have been working for him, making these silver shrines. He says that the gods made made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia, and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. So he's saying this thing that we've built our livelihood on, right, our lives on, our income comes from—it's it, going to be taken away from us. Now, I—I I don't know whether, like, I don't know whether Demetrius wrestled or or any of the craftsmen that worked for him wrestled with this idea of believing the gospel or not. Um but they clearly had something to lose if they did right? If they they said, I believe this Jesus, and I believe that the way is the way for me to walk in and the way for me to go, they had a whole lot to lose. Their whole lives would have been rearranged. They would have had to find a different line of work. They would have had to be creative in a new way. They would have had to go out and maybe, instead of working for themselves, making stuff, they might have had to work for somebody else. It would have caused them to rearrange their whole life and what they had gone, become uh, used to and accustomed to. And They start this riot because what they begin to see is that as the gospel is proclaimed in Ephesus, their cultural idols begin to tumble and topple and fall. The foundation of their culture's idols are being shaken, and they're going to have to give something up because the culture is shifting, and they're no longer going to be able to make a living off of this. You see, this is what we see that happens time and time again throughout history, that when the church is urgent about the message of the gospel— when the church is out proclaiming the goodness of Jesus Christ and telling people about what He's done and new life that can only be found in Jesus, that culture begins to shift. That societies begin to change. That things cannot stay the same because the gospel transforms people, and people transform cultures. And as that happens, the cultural idols begin to topple. And I think the question for us is: What are our cultural idols in our world today, in our society that need to topple? They need to be crumbled. They're Foundations need to be shaken. And those will only topple. They will only crumble. They'll only fall if we're committed to proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, what is it that's in our society? And we could come up with a list of things. And we'll be doing this even in our small groups that will meet during the week. But we could come up with a list of things. And I challenge you to come up with a list of things that have become idols in our culture that ultimately are warring for our allegiance and pulling us to walk away from the way of Christ? Is money playing that role in our culture? Where the pursuit of money and income and the things that it affords, is that that pulling us away from Christ? I think it is. I think if we live in this world that we're always going to wrestle with that that we're always going to be drawn and driven towards nice and shiny and new and things that can only be bought, and that those things tend to pull us away from Christ. And we have to step back and we have to say, which one am I going to allow to have my allegiance, my attention? Which one is going to rule? Which one, as the Bible says, is going to be my master? Is our independence or freedom that we value in this nation, is that become an idol for us in our culture where if in in all costs, I'm going to maintain my independence, I'm going to remain free, I'm, I'm not going to. And we see that the early church knew very little about being free, at least not physically free. They knew about the freedom that could only come through Jesus Christ, that freedom from sin, but they knew very little about being physically free as they were being thrown in prisons. And as the law was being written to ostracize them and push them into the margins of society. Right? What is it that's gaining our allegiance? Because those things become our cultural idols. Are they the political divide that we see in this partisanship, this partisanship that we see that calls us into corners and dig in deeper? and that we're more Republicans or Democrats than we are followers of Jesus Christ. And I think if we're going to follow Jesus Christ, we're going to have to give up both of those allegiances and say we're going to allow the gospel to determine what's right and what's wrong, what's good for our world, not our political sides and divisions. You see, the gospel calls us to live our lives in such a way that it topples our cultural idols, and our culture is only going to change and shift if we're committed to proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ with our words. Because our lives are insufficient, and they can never do that work. You know, there's some cultural idols that need to topple. They need to come down. Our world will be better as a result of it. Our culture will be more unified. That we'll be friendlier and kinder to one another. And Jesus will be known in the new life that he offers will be experienced more and more actually right now in this world as we proclaim the gospel and our culture begins to shift. You know, there are some steps I think that we can take uh, to prepare ourselves for sharing the gospel, and I just want to share a couple of those uh, with you this morning. And the first one that I want you to think about is um, we have to learn our story. Right? We have to learn our faith story. One of the most important things you can do as a follower of Jesus Christ is to write your own faith story. Write it down, right? To to ask these questions of how did you come to be a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, I think on the slides we have a couple of uh, questions that are good for us to ask as we begin to think about our own faith stories. Like, what was my life like before I met Jesus? How did I realize that I needed Jesus? Why did I commit my life to Jesus? What difference has Jesus made in my life? What scriptures have played a significant role in my spiritual formation? Those questions are all in the handout you got when you came in. I think it's number three that's on there. Uh, But those questions are important for us as we write down our own faith story. Because here's the thing. Stories are extremely popular in our society today. Extremely powerful in our society Today. In fact, the way our world is trending and the way our culture has shifted, our society values experience and story more than it values truth. We used to live in a world that we could sit down with somebody and we could open up the Bible and we could sit down and we could tell them and walk them through the Roman road or the plan of salvation from scriptures. We could find the best and and, uh, clearest scriptures in the Bible that we could open up the Bible and we could tell them about the glory and goodness of Jesus Christ. We could go from creation to new creation. We could do all that and then we could challenge them to believe, but that just doesn't work anymore at least not as well as it did in times past. Our culture no longer values truth in the same way that it did in the past. It values experience and story. And for the church to stand and say, well, I got to walk them through the Roman road or, well, I got to uh, uh, play, lay out my plan of salvation that I used 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that's just ineffective today. We have to begin sharing the gospel with our, beginning with our story. And here's the thing, and this is why it's so important that you write your story, um, because it's important for you to be sure by writing your story that your own personal story lines up with the teaching of Scripture and that it's pointing people to Jesus Christ. You see, it's not that the church is, because our society has, rejected truth and says there's no truth. It's not that the church is rejecting truth and saying there's no truth anymore, but rather it's the church saying our lives and our story has to be told in such a way that it points people towards the truth of Jesus Christ. It points people towards the reality of Jesus Christ. So we have to write our story, get comfortable with it. The Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Literally, that scripture says, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their stories. Right? And it says, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within you that's telling your story. What's your story? Whenever we read about Paul, we see that Paul always begins with his story. He says, I was a Jew. I persecuted Christians. I saw this bright light. Jesus knocked me to the ground, and I was led by some guys to someone's house that preached the gospel. I came to believe. I hid in places because they knew me as a persecutor of Christianity, and there were people that had had it out for me, but I learned the gospel. I was transformed. It took a while, but I came to preach and proclaim the gospel. Now Jesus, who I once was persecuting, is leading me. That, that was kind of Paul's story, that you see him going through time and time and time again. Because he knew this, that stories are powerful, and that it's as we tell our stories that we have the opportunity to point people towards the truth. So the first thing we have to do is we have to learn our story. Do that. Write, write your story down. Second thing we have to do is we have to learn the story of Jesus Christ. We have eyewitness accounts. We have uh, well-researched accounts of Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of John. These are trustworthy accounts of Jesus' life that we have. We have to be committed to studying them, to learning them, to knowing them, so that we can tell them, so that we can share them. You see, the story of Jesus is important, and we got to get there in our world. Now, I know there's a rule that says don't discuss religion and politics with people that you want to continue to get along with, right? And that as a result of that, we have stepped back from sharing the good news, and we see our culture drifting in the way that it will drift if we don't use our words. And it's time for the church to stop letting our culture drift and for us to learn our stories so that we can engage in the world with our stories, ultimately leading people towards the truth of Jesus Christ so that they can come to know God's story. You see, here's where all this leads for us is that we learn our stories so that we can tell our stories. We learn the story of Jesus so we can tell the story of Jesus. And all this equips us to be able to invite people into God's grand narrative, right? We use our story and the story of Jesus to invite people into God's grand narrative. Because in John chapter 3.16, it says, For God so loved the ro- the world, that means there's room. Because he loved the whole world that he gave his one and only son, right? He died for the world. There's room. God's house never fills up. God's table never grows full. God never pushes anyone out because they run out of space. There's never a, a, no vacancy sign, right, outside of God's house, right? God is always welcoming more and more to come in. And he's challenging us to be his ambassadors in this world who are calling more and more to come in as they hear our stories that point to the story of Jesus and ultimately invites people into God's story. This week in our city groups, in this week, my prayer for you is that you'll begin thinking about how you can do that. How you can use your words to invite people into God's story. That's what I'm going to be spending my week doing. And I'm going to be spending my week challenging, allowing the scriptures to challenge me with the significance of the message that has changed my life such that, so much so that, I cannot stop using my words. And I can't stop telling people about the story of Jesus Christ. You know, this morning we, um, we're going to witness two baptisms. And baptism's not just this weird thing that the church does, although it's kind of strange. This is our baptistry, and it's filled with water. And you're going to see two people come up on this stage, and they're going to be dunked under this water. And they're going to be held down, <laughs> not too long, hopefully. <laughs> I always say till the bubbles stop coming up, but I don't know. You got too many witnesses. So we won't do that, but they'll be immersed in this water, and they'll be raised back up. And you don't have to look back, but there's kids that are filing in in the back, and they're going to see this and it's going to leave an impression on them because they're going to come to know the good news of Jesus Christ and that is this that Jesus died so that we might have new life in him that Jesus died in our place so that we don't have to die And that what's going to happen here is some young people are going to be dunked under this water that's right here. As they're dunked under this water, we know that being held underwater is not a good thing. And so we're not going to do that. But they're going to be raised up into the new life that only Jesus has to offer. And they're going to know this, right, that because they were dunked and raised, his death is now their death. And that they don't have to follow in that way of Christ, right? They don't have to go to their own cross to pay the price for their own sins because that's the one thing Christ did for us that we don't have to do. We do not have to carry our cross all the way to death because Jesus died for us. We just have to allow our flesh to die and be raised to this new life right here, right now knowing that there's a day that we'll go to be with the Lord forever. Oh, how we long for that day. And so we're going to share in baptism, and then also we have communion that's prepared on these four tables that are around the room. And after the baptism, you can feel free to make your way to one of these four tables around the room. And if you've been baptized, share in communion with one another and remember and celebrate the day you were baptized, the day that you came alive in Jesus Christ, the way the day you received your new life, the day your life was changed forever. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks this morning that we have this opportunity to gather in this place and to read your scriptures your word that's spoken to us. God, I pray that as we witness this baptism, God, that we will remember our own. And God, if we have not been baptized, if there's anyone here that has not been baptized, God, I pray that today will be the day they begin asking the questions, what must I do to be saved? God, I pray that you open us up ultimately. That you open us up progressively, that we're able to give you our best yes for all the days ahead. Senior Son, Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen.